scripture tonight is from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Thank you, James. Thank you, Todd, for that thoughtful prayer. Thank you for being here tonight for this period of worship. I think it's truthfully can be said that one of the most basic needs and longings of our hearts is for a, a real friend. And I mean a true friend. There are a lot of people that have weighed in on what the definition of a friend is. Let me share just a few of those with you. Someone has said a friend is someone who knows all about you and loves you just the same. Or here's another one. A true friend will go on liking you no matter, no matter how successful either of you becomes. Or on a more serious note, it's been said a friend is one who strengthens you with his prayers, blesses you with his love, and encourages you with his hope. Or here's another. A friend is one to whom distance is no barrier to communication, to concern, or to caring. Or a friend is someone who believes in you when, when you've stopped believing in yourself. Or a friend is somebody who's on the scene when you need him and quietly leaves when you want to be left alone. And another put it like this, a friend is someone who is there when you call and sometimes even before you call. All of these, I think, are splendid thoughts and opinions on the subject of prayer. Our question tonight, however, is what does the Bible say about the matter of friendship? Because you see, the Bible does, in fact, place a very heavy emphasis on the matter of friends and being a friend, being the right kind of person that it is easy for others to befriend. Let me say a word, if I may, about the value of friendship in light of what God's word has to say. In our text, as James just read, Solomon said, a, a friend loves at all times. There's more to it than that, but that's the essence of it. A true friend is someone who is of infinite value. And I want to say right up front in this discussion, and this may surprise you somewhat, but I need to say it. I do not have many true friends. Now that may seem strange to you. You might think that someone as a gospel preacher would be overrun with friends. I do have a lots of wonderful acquaintances. I enjoy them. I thank God for them. But a true friend is rare to find. I used to hear people say, if you can count your friends on one hand, you'll be fortunate. At the time, I, be, I doubted the credibility or the validity of that statement. And I'd think, not me, buddy. I got, you know, I began to think about all the places I've been, all my associations. And I would think immediately, I've got lots of friends. There's the guys that I played high school sports with. There's my classmates. There's the folks I've known at all the churches where I've served. Why, I've got hundreds of friends. But the older I get, and hopefully the more wisdom that I have gained, the more I understand what people talk about when they talk about the rarity of a true friend. We all touch people, obviously, on different levels. Our lives Someone has said it's like an ocean vessel on a journey through the sea of life. And there are many people who will hop on and off board. And these are the casual acquaintances that we meet through life. They touch our lives briefly. We enjoy them. We may learn something from each of them, but then they are, they're gone. And then there are other friends who can be categorized and are often referred to as fair-weather friends. They climb on board and they sail for a while, but then when a storm comes up, you know what happens. They immediately jump ship. They abandon board. And, and then, thank God, there's a third kind of friend, and that's a true friend. That's a real friend. When they get on board the ship of your life, they stay on board. 
In the calm, they are there. But in the storm, they are also there. When the wind is whipping, they're there. When the lightning is flashing, they're there. And they will not leave you until they see you safely into port. This is the kind of friend that I have in mind tonight. And I do not have many of those true, genuine friends. But let me let you in on something. Neither do you. As a matter of fact, the Bible warns against having too many friends. If you doubted if you would learn something at all tonight in this lesson, I hope that you've learned something new. The Bible actually counsels against having too many friends. Proverbs 18, verse 24, the first part of that verse, in several translations, including the New American Standard Bible, says, A man of many friends comes to ruin. I believe the English Standard Version has a very similar rendering. Again, a man of many friends comes to ruin. That's an amazing verse. But what's the reason behind it? Why would Solomon ever sit down and write a proverb like that? I believe it's because friends, real friends, are costly to have. It it requires effort. It takes time. And so there's a lot of engagement and involvement if you have true friends. A real friend is someone in whom you're going to invest your, your energy and your prayers and your time and even we leave pieces of our heart with someone that we deem to be a true friend. So a genuine friendship will be a demand on your social life, your financial life, and even your emotional life. And you cannot afford the luxury of many of that kind of friend because it would be impossible to maintain them. We just don't have that many resources to be able to divvy up among thousands of friends. You need only one mate and only a few friends. When I was in college preparing to to preach, I received lots of really good advice. And then there would be some that I would categorize as not so really good. And some of the not so good advice that I got was that a preacher and, and, and anyone like me that would serve as a preacher ought not to have any personal friends in the congregation where they were serving. Here was the reasoning. It would make other people jealous and envious. It would be playing favorites among the congregation besides having to sever those relationships when the time then came to leave. And so it was best to show no partiality and to have no personal friends. And, of course, the equally sad corollary to that was that a preacher's wife should not have any friends either for the same reasons. I believe that to be bad advice. And here's why. To counsel anyone, even preachers, But to tell anyone who lives that they should not have friends is to deny our basic humanity. Let me give an example of that. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches very clearly, when he was here in the flesh, had his own personal friends. And I don't think that's anything new that you are learning tonight. I believe you knew that when you came in here. He loved everybody. But it's clear from reading the gospel accounts that he had his own special friends. There were the 12 apostles, of course, that he chose to be those apostles that would be ambassadors for him as they went into the world to spread his message. But among those 12, there was three men. You can name them, can't you? They're sometimes referred to as the Lord's executive committee. They were his personal special friends, Peter, James, and John. And the Bible indicates that they were there with him at special moments in his earthly life. And then out of Peter, James, and John, out of those three, the Bible only refers to one. That's John as the beloved disciple. Again, Jesus loved many people. He loved everyone. But there was, there was one home where he would often stay, and that was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were his special friends. Jesus did not deny that. He did not attempt to hide it. 
He didn't ever explain to anyone else, listen, I, I know it may look like I'm playing favorites here when I go and have lunch with these three people, but they're just precious. No, he never tried to in any way rationalize or justify his special friendship with those three people. They were the ones who, who ministered to him in a very personal way. And folks, I'm just saying that if the Lord Jesus and his humanity needed a friend, then so must you and I. So remember, do not have too many, but you must have some. Ben Franklin, I believe, is the one who counseled, be slow in making your friends, even slower in changing them. Let me say a word, if I may, about the virtues of friendship. And the Bible speaks on that subject in both Testaments. There really are no bargain basement friendships, as we have already established. If we have true friends, and if they look at us as true friends, there is all kinds of investment that that requires, time, resources, sometimes finances, but obviously our emotions, that's a part of what friendship is all about. There are, though, no bargain basement friendship, not truly. If it's only at a superficial level, then we cannot look at that as being a true friend. They're certainly costly, but I want you to understand why they are worth the investment for a number of reasons. Most of them established in our very short text tonight. Look again, if you will, at Proverbs 17 and verse 17, where Solomon said that true friendship is selfless. Now, I know he didn't say it in exactly those words, but what he did say is a friend loves at all times. And we might add parenthetically to that even when it's not convenient. Have you ever been called in the middle of the night by someone who desperately needed your help because you are, you know, in their contact list? You're one of their friends. And if you really are a true friend, you did not look at that as some kind of, uh, of difficult sacrifice that you had to make. You appreciated the fact that they cared enough about you and that they had enough confidence in you and that you were close enough that they would call you at a time of crisis because that's what true friends do. Certain people may claim to be your friend, and yet they will attach certain conditions upon their friendship. They'll stipulate things like, I love you if... Or I love you when, or I love you until, or I love you because. That is, if I can satisfy their needs, they'll be my friend. But when I can no longer or will no longer satisfy their needs, they will stop being my friends. Again, we all recognize that as something other than true friendship. Whatever it is, it's not a real friend. Because when the if and the when and the until or the because are not exactly right, then overboard they go. A real friend is someone who is selfless, someone who loves you not because of any need in himself or herself as such that you just happen to feel. A true friend is one who possesses an unconditional love that proves over and over and over again in the experiences of life that I love you, period. Second, I believe Solomon in our text is telling us that true friendship is steadfast. Notice the wording. A friend loves at all times. Again, we might add, even when it's not convenient. A friend loves at all times. An English publication had a contest for the best definition of a friend. People were asked to submit their definition. And so there was a, a panel of judges that, of course, uh, evaluated those definitions. And somewhat arbitrary, but nonetheless, there was a grand prize awarded to someone who they deemed had given the best definition. Some of the honorable mentions were these. I think they're worth mentioning. A friend is somebody who multiplies your joys and divides your sorrows. That's pretty good, isn't it? I believe that's right. A friend is somebody who multiplies your joys and divides your sorrows. Well, what about this one? A friend is someone who understands your silence. 
That's right too, isn't it? If you're with a true friend, you don't really have to say anything to communicate volumes. But the one that won the grand prize, a real friend, is someone who comes in when the whole world is going out. Maybe you've heard that. I think that's valid. I think that's very consistent with what Solomon is communicating. And here in Proverbs 17, 17, that's just another way of saying a friend loves at all times. Do you want to find out who your true friends are? And I mean really true, real friends. Then make a mistake. I don't mean a minor mistake. I mean an earth-shattering big mistake. Just make some dumb decision that winds up having a, a consequence or a series of consequences in your life. Make a big mistake and see what happens. Most of the people, and I don't mean this to be negative, I'm just trying to be real here. Most of the people, when that happens, that you thought were your friends will desert you like rats leaving a sinking ship. They were not true friends. But Proverbs 27 and verse 10 is where Solomon says, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. That would be kind of interesting to kick around in a Bible class, wouldn't it, sometime? Why your father's friend? Why is it necessary to go back a generation? And not only make sure that you are true to your friends in your generation, but also to the older generation. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. We need to dig into that sometime. But, but it doesn't matter what you've done. A true blue friend is going to be there for you. Now, I hope you understand, if you're taking notes tonight, or even if you aren't, that I'm not suggesting that you go out and make a big mistake. But I am saying that that is one of the criteria for determining what true friends are, if you do. Make a mistake in your life. Your true blue friends are going to be there for you, still believing in you. Oh, yes, they will absolutely hold you accountable because that's one of the aspects of real friendship as well. They're not going to overlook your, your bad, dumb decision. You're, they're going to be there for you nonetheless as you wade through those consequences. They're going to be believing in your better nature. And they're going to be, be believing that you will be able to rise above whatever it was that you did. They just believe the best in you and that you're going to be able to overcome that. You're going to be able to bounce back from that and that you're going to be able to be victorious in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like this little poem by an unknown author. Don't walk in front of me. I may not follow. Do not walk behind me. I may not lead. Just walk beside me and be my friend. And there's a great deal of validity to that as well. Third, friendship is also sacrificial. Back over in Proverbs chapter 18, the latter part of verse 14, is where Solomon said there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's one of the friendship passages, Proverbs, that we're most familiar with. I say it again, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Sometimes it would be easier to forsake your friend than it would be to become involved in his trouble, to get yourself, you know, knee deep in all the things that's, and, and the, the static that's going on in his or her life. And that's because, as we've noted, friendship is sometimes costly. The Indians have a word for friend translated into English. This is, at least from what I've read, is one who carries your sorrows on his back. Well, that sounds like scripture, doesn't it? That reminds me of the Lord Jesus you remember that prophecy that Isaiah wrote in 53, verse 4? Truly, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus truly is a friend. No wonder we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Because Jesus does that for us. It costs the Lord everything to wear the title, the, 
the friend of, the, the friend of sinners. And then John, in John 15, 13 said, greater love has no man than this, that a man laid out his life for his friends. Here's a fourth suggestion from our text. True, true friendship is, and I really wrestled to, to find the right word here, and I hope I, I came up with the right one. True friendship is, is sanctifying. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron. So a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Let me remind you tonight that you do not sharpen an axe on a stick of butter. There needs to be some kind of friction that's going on in order for the, the axe actually to get sharpened. And if you are and you have a real friend, he's going to have an uplifting, sharpening, honing influence on your life, at least according to what Solomon said. He's going to make you a better person. He is going to, in the words, or at least in the ideology of what Solomon is writing, he is going to put a cutting edge on your life. He's going to make you, or she's going to make you a better person. But a false friend will do just the opposite. They will blunt your influence, they will dull your usefulness, and they will eventually wear you down. Now, you don't have to know a great deal about what it takes to sharpen an axe to know that there is a difference in putting an edge on and grinding down. A true friend will put an edge on you but they will not grind you down by the power of their influence. And that's because while it's true that a genuine friend will never forsake you, it is equally true, watch this carefully, church, it is equally true that a true friend will never condone your wrongdoing. He'll always confront you so that he can help change you for the better. He truly wants to see what is best for you. He is truly the epitome of agape love, seeking your highest interest even above his own. And so if you have done wrong, he is going to come to you in a spirit of love and meekness and humility and point that out and say, I love you too much to ignore this. I want to see you go to heaven. And that's why we have those kinds of personal conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ that Paul talked about in Galatians 6.1. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, that's the discussion I'm referring to. So a true friend will not, will not overlook your wrongdoing. True friend will, will help smooth out the rough edges on your life. There's a bittersweet verse of scripture found in Proverbs 27, 6 that reads like this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I know you've read that before, but isn't that interesting? Again, the faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Let me ask, would you rather be wounded or kissed? Well, in light of that passage, it depends on by whom. Because it would be a lot better to be wounded by a friend than to be kissed by an enemy, at least according to what Solomon says. You see, flattery comes from false friends. A true friend may compliment you. But a true friend will never flatter you. And that's because under the skin, hypocrisy and flattery are twins. Here's what I mean by that. The only difference is this. A hypocrite will say behind your back what he would never say to your face. A flatterer will say to your face what they would never say behind your back. But the, two, the, the, the two are still brothers. But true friendship will, will, will love you enough to confront you when the occasion calls for it. Just a few months ago, I had some surgery. The surgeon cut me in eight different places. Post-surgery, I know that because I counted. And I could feel every one of those places. I mean, he sliced into me with a sharp instrument. I assume it, it was sharp. And then he had the audacity to charge me for it. <laughs> and let me tell you something else to add 
uh, insult literally to injury. He never shed a tear in doing any of that. It, it did not bother him a bit. In fact, I suggest that he may have rather enjoyed doing it. And I don't know because I was out, and I'm glad about that. But the reality, the bottom line of that is, that old boy cut me. Remember Solomon said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The reality is the surgeon hurt me so that he might heal me. And that's what happens between two friends. He hurt me because he had my best interests in mind. He wanted to see me live a better quality life. The test of a true friend is this. Are you a better person because of your friend? Isn't that a good question, a good issue for Solomon to bring up in the Proverbs? Now, I'm not with my true friends for more than five minutes before they're giving me a new thought, a new idea, a new blessing, something that will make me a better person because that's what true friends do. They're constantly adding to my life because they have riches from the Word of God that they can share with me and things I've never thought about that they have a particular personal insight with. And, and Mia knows exactly what I'm talking about. We, we have some friends that we sit with about once a year, but that's all it takes because we catch up. And we talk about everything in the world. Someone wrote these heartfelt words. I love you not for what you are, but for what, for what I am when I'm with you. I love you not only for what you have made of yourself. I love you for what you've made of me. I love you for not closing your ears to the discord in me, but for adding to the music in me by carefully listening. You can and have done it without a touch, without a word, without a sigh. You've done it by just being yourself, and perhaps that's what a true friend means after all, end quote. I think that's exactly right. Let me mention the importance of this venture of friendship, and then we're through. Because there are certain spiritual and practical ways of entering into the venture of friendship. The very best friend is a person that we could ever find anywhere in existence is the Lord Jesus Christ. I've already mentioned that, but I need to come back to it. He has all the attributes of a true friend. He is a selfless friend who will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5 says he's a sacrificial friend because, again, John said, greater love has no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Well, you can check that one off. You can check that square because Jesus did that as well. He's a sanctifying friend who can make you into the kind of person that you need to be and that he wants you to be. According to Philippians 1 and verse 6, you are that construction project we talked about a couple of Sunday nights ago. And Jesus wants to see you through to the end so that you can be everything that he has in mind for you. Even when you're not able to conceive of that or to believe that in yourself, Jesus Christ believes in you. And he wants to see you become everything. He wants you to realize your full potential in this world because that's what a true friend does. And even his enemies called him a friend of sinners. And he is still that in our world today, 2,000 years after he walked on this planet. You see, he doesn't love us because we're lovely. He simply loves us. And aren't you grateful? He doesn't love us because we're valuable. We're valuable because he loves us. He doesn't change us in order to love us. He loves us in order to change us. And that's the kind of friend that you and I have in Jesus Christ. No wonder that name is so beautiful. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Paul wrote, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
That, of course, is Romans 5 and verse 8. And the reason so many people in the world don't have human friends, I really believe this with all my heart, so many people in this world are friendless. And the reason is because they do not have Jesus Christ as their best friend. If they were squared away on that relationship, it would be a lot easier for them to cultivate true friends in this world while they're walking through. And also, let's face it, some people don't have friends because they're not the kind of person that it's easy to be a friend with. Solomon weighed in on that too. He said a man that has friends must show himself friendly. So you not only are looking for the right kind of person to be your friend, but you also have to be the right kind of person in order to be friend material, Solomon says. They have a basic character flaw, though, that, let's face it, makes them obnoxious and difficult to be around. There are people like that walking around this world too. The character flaw is essentially insecurity, and that insecurity will raise its ugly head in their lives personified as selfishness. And, and I don't have to tell you, we're living in a very selfish, not selfless, selfish world today. An insecure person feels like he doesn't have anything at all to give, therefore he wants to constantly take, 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 and that really, I think, is an apt description of our planet right now. And the hidden reason behind their desire for friendship is to find someone else that they can latch onto and to leech strength from. They're always looking for something. What can that person do for me if I can make them into my friend? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. Or from my neck of the woods, you are barking up the wrong tree. You're looking at exactly the wrong thing. You don't pick friends by saying, what can that person do for me? You don't pick marriage partners that way either. If you do, you're in trouble. And so are they. No, no, the Lord says you become the right person yourself. And you will have no difficulty in having friends. It's basically, in the world, it's a basically a getting relationship with nothing to give in return. And the solution to all of this is to meet the Lord Jesus Christ who knows all about you and who loves you infinitely despite your and my weaknesses. And that's, that's just what the Bible calls grace. The fact, the fact that God accepts you apart from any human merits or any accomplishments or any value, he still loves you. He accepts us just the way we are. As Cromwell said, warts and all. You see, faith and obedience is our acceptance of the fact that the Lord accepts us. Have you ever thought about that? When we come to the Lord in salvation, it is not just a matter of him accepting us. It is also our accepting the fact that he has accepted us. I know some Christians running around who've never gotten to that point. They have never fully grasped the acceptance that they need to have of the fact that the Lord has accepted them. But only then do we come to accept ourselves. And we can come to the grips with the fact that it's all right for me to love what Jesus loves. And if Jesus loves me, then I can love me. Now, I know that some people have some problems with that because I preached that before and I've met them in the foyer. And people have said, well, Randy, I, I don't think people ought to love themselves. Well, then they're going to have problems with Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, aren't they? Love your neighbor even as you love yourself. Now, some people assert that we're not supposed to love our... Well, again, you're going to have problems with that passage. If, if you don't love yourself, how are you going to love anybody else? You have to have a basic self-love, a, a biblical, spiritual, healthy self-image based on the fact that the Lord, in Paul's words in Ephesians 1, 6, 
the Lord has accepted you in the beloved. I love that language. He has accepted you in the beloved. Listen to me now. When I say that you're to love yourself, that means that you're supposed to stand in front of a mirror and sing how great thou art. So don't get the wrong impression. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that in Jesus Christ, you are somebody. You are a royal priesthood, Peter said. You are, you are spiritual blue blood because you're a child of the king. And that within itself makes you someone of worth. There are multitudes of people out there who are waiting for someone to come and to be their friend. I went out to find a friend and did not find one there. I went out to be a friend and found one everywhere. Dale Carnegie is the one who wrote, You can make more friends in two months by becoming really interested in people than you can in two years in trying to get other people interested in you. But first be practical. Put yourself into the type of place where the right kinds of friends are, and that means in the church of our Lord and not in the singles bar. Are you hearing me, church? You've got to put yourself in the right place to find the right kind of friends. You'll, you'll most likely meet true friends in the social context of God's people. So be the right person in the right place. So be practical. Number two, take risks. You're going to have to at some point break the ice, find someone with a common interest, begin to share with that person those commonalities. And I know that there's a risk. I know that it may be that you might be rejected. You might even be embarrassed. That's what happens to us as we walk through life. But you're able to risk it because Jesus Christ has already filled those emotional voids in your life and you can handle it. Number three, be yourself. Be your best self. But make sure that you're not trying to be someone else. You be yourself. Because if you're not, eventually that new friend is going to find out that what you are putting up in front of them was a facade and it wasn't the true you. So always be yourself. Number four, be reasonable. Don't try to make it happen overnight. The truth is there are no true instant friendships. Friendship does not come in a kit and you just add water. It takes a while to build a friendship. So don't, don't do an overkill. You might drive your new friend away. Let it happen and trust God to grow that relationship and it may have to grow slowly. And fifth and finally, do not make unreasonable demands. Don't smother your new friend. Allow them to have their own life as well. And if you'll follow that approach and you pray, God, give me a friend, folks, I am absolutely convinced he will. And remember Paul's statement in Philippians 4.19, but my God will supply all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. How many needs of mine and yours will Christ supply? Every single one of them. God answers prayers, folks, and he will send you the right kind of friend. Bring that person into your life. But first, you have to be the right kind of person. And as Andrew talked about this morning, that starts with a spiritual makeover. You may have to start from the ground up, but that's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. You start by saying, I believe with all my heart that God built this planet, this universe, and that he allowed his son to die for me. That faith will move you to truly repent of your past sins and then to confess as you begin to learn more and more about this man named Jesus that he, in fact, was the son of God. You'll confess that before others. You'll gladly and courageously confess that, and then you'll be baptized in water, dipped in his blood to have all of your past sins washed away, and you'll walk out of this place a brand-new creature. It's, it's wonderful how that happens. I've been preaching for 50 years now, and every time 
I'm either baptizing someone or just sitting where you are and watching someone being baptized into Christ. It never grows old. Because I know that the person that walked into this building is not the person who walks out. You are a brand new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if that's what you need tonight, we bid you come while we stand, while we sing. There's a power.